Welcome back to Mark's Madness. All right, guys, we have gotten all of that dumb current events nonsense out of our system. <laughs> Let's go ahead and read a book. Now it's time to invade f- your eardrums. Now it's time for this. This is Mark's Madness. We read books. The final report of the Committee of 15 was made June 18th. It had an 800-page book, and 100,000 copies were distributed. Its majority and minority sections summed up the strongest arguments available for and against the proposed methods of reconstruction. The part of the majority report that touched the Negro said, Slavery has been abolished by constitutional amendment. A large proportion of the population had become, instead of mere chattels, free men and citizens. Through all the past struggles, these had remained true and loyal, and had in large numbers fought on the side of the Union. It was impossible to abandon them without securing them their rights as free men and citizens. The whole civilized world would have cried out against such base ingratitude. And the bare idea is offensive to all right-thinking men. Hence, it became important to inquire what could be done to secure their rights, civil and political. It was evident to your committee that adequate security could only be found in appropriate constitutional provisions. The increase of representation necessarily resulting from the abolition of slavery was considered the most important element in the questions arising out of the changed condition of affairs, and the necessity for some fundamental action in this regard seemed imperative. It appeared to your committee that the rights of these persons by whom the basis of representation had been thus increased should be recognized by the general government. While slaves, they were not considered as having any rights, civil or political. It did not seem that su- it did not seem just or proper that all the political advantages derived from their becoming free should be confined to their former masters who had fought against the union and withheld from themselves who had always been loyal. Doubts were entertained whether Congress had power, even under the amended Constitution, to prescribe the qualifications of voters in a state or could act directly on the subject. It was doubtful in their opinion of in the opinion of your committee whether the states would consent to surrender a power they had always exercised and to which they were attached. As the best, if not the only method of surmounting the difficulty and an eminently just and proper in itself, your committee came to the conclusion that political power should be possessed in all the states exactly in proportion as the right of suffrage should be granted without distinction of color or race. It appears quite clear that the anti-slavery amendments, both to the state and federal constitutions, were adopted in the South with reluctancy by the bodies which did adopt them, while in some states there have been either passed by in silence or rejected. The language of all provisions and ordinances of these states on the subject amounts to nothing more than an unwilling admission of an unwelcome truth. Looking still further at the evidence taken by your committee, it is found to be clearly shown by witnesses of the highest character and having the best means of observation that the Freedmen's Bureau instituted for the relief and protection of freedmen and refugees is almost universally opposed by the mass of the population and exists in an efficient condition only under military protection. While the Union men of the South are earnest in its defense, declaring with one voice that without its protection, the colored people would not be permitted to labor at fair prices and could hardly live in safety. They also testify that without the protection of the United States troops, Union men, whether of Northern or Southern origin, would be obliged to abandon their homes. The feeling in many portions of the country toward the emancipated slaves, especially among the uneducated and ignorant, is one of vindictive and malicious hatred. This deep-seated prejudice against color is assiduously cultivated by the public journals and leads to acts of cruelty, oppression, and murder, which the local authorities are at no pains to prevent or punish. 
There is no general disposition to place the colored race continuing at two fifths of the population upon even upon terms of even civil equality. While many instances be found where large planters and men of the better class accept the situation and honestly strive to bring about a better order of things by employing the freedmen at fair wages and treating them kindly, the general feeling and disposition among all classes are yet totally averse to the toleration of any class of people friendly to the Union, be they white or black, and this aversion is not infrequently manifested in an insulting and offensive manner. Yeah, so David? nothing nothing surprising there, right? I mean, of course, they saw, they were like, okay, so, you know, we decided suffrage is, is going to have to equal, you know, black people voting, or at the very least, your represent, representation will be determined by who gets to vote, not by who doesn't get to vote, mm-hmm. but happens to be black in the state. Um, and they were really reluctant to pass this stuff in the South, and if you go down there, all classes, wholly united of, of the people that fought for the South, of of you know the working whites and and especially the plantation owners um would just resort to violence and still do because they're not going to stop them they're they're on their side um and of course you know they said white and black men alike you know any union men in the south are, are facing this violence so again you see where the primary victim and that should never be decentered are are black people but what they're coming after is politics that benefit black people and and you know because they're defending their power structures um they're defending their racism uh this this part of the report was signed by 12 members of the committee the other three members submitted a minority report it was in I, that's that's a movie right <laughs> uh, it was Tom in, Cruise. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. there we go uh, it was in the main the old metaphysical argument signed by johnson the constitutional lawyer from maryland rogers the extreme advocate of southern rights from new jersey and greider <laughs> greider doesn't have the, the thing. one the one guy a the one lawyer guy. the other yeah. guy an extreme advocate and this and, dude and this dude yeah <laughs> They are asked to disenfranchise a numerous class of citizens and also to agree to diminish their representation in Congress and, of course, in the Electoral College or to admit the right of suffrage to their colored males of 21 years of age and upwards, a class now in a condition of almost utter ignorance, thus placing them on the same political footing with white citizens of that age. For reasons so obvious that the dullest may discover them, the right is not directly asserted of granting suffrage to the Negro. That would be obnoxious to most of the northern and western states, so much so that their consent was not to be anticipated but as the plan adopted because of the limited number of negroes in such states will have no effect on the representation it is thought it may be adopted while the southern states it will materially lessen their number these latter states will assent to the measure can hardly be expected the effect then if not the purpose of the measure is forever to deny representatives to such states or if they're consistent to the condition to weaken their representative power and thus probably secure a continuance of such parity and power as now controls the legislation of government the measure in its terms and its effect whether designed or not is to degrade the southern states to consent to to it will be consent to their own dishonor and i'm sorry it fucking should be you lost the civil war you shouldn't you have had this extra power in the war, first place you and get you lost dishonor yes yeah i mean you can you can go by by the merit thing in which case you have the immoral and corrupt side of things and fuck you for enslaving people i'm i'm good with that or you can go by you know spoils go to the victor 
in which case you got your ass kicked. I'm sorry. It's over. There is no pathway other than I want real bad because racism that makes the South not being dishonored in this way makes sense. They're not going to like it. Of course, they're not going to like it. Fucking sucks. You lost. Neither Sumner nor Steve. Yep. Neither Sumner nor Stevens was satisfied satisfied with the 14th Amendment. On the last day of the session, July 28, 1866, Thaddeus Stevens made his last defense of Negro suffrage. He was at the time worn out. His health was precarious. He was 73 years of age. He hardly expected to return to his seat in the House. With deep solemnity, he sought to make one more, perhaps an expiring effort, to do something which shall be useful to my fellow men, something to elevate and enlighten the poor, the oppressed, and the ignorant in this great crisis of human affairs the black man he declared must have the ballot or he would continue to be a slave there was some alleviation to the lot of a bondman, but a freedman a freedman deprived of every human right is the most degraded of human beings without the protection of the ballot box the freedmen were the mere serfs and would become the victims of their former masters he declared that what he had done for humanity, I know it is easy, he said, to protect the interests of the rich and powerful, but it is the great labor to guard the rights of the poor and downtrodden. It is the internal labor of Sisyphus forever to be renewed. In this, perhaps my final action of this great question, I can see nothing in my political course, especially in regard to human freedom, which I could wish to have expunged or changed. I believe that we must all account hereafter for the deeds done in the body, and the political deeds will be among those accounts. I desire to take the bar of that final settlement, the record which I shall to this day make on the great question of human rights, which I am sure it will not make atonement for half my errors. I hope it will be some pa- palliation. All there, mm-hmm. Are there any who will venture to take the list with their negative seal upon it, who will dare to unroll it before the stern judge who is the father of the immoral beings, whom they have been trampling underfoot, and whose souls they have been crushing out? I, Thaddy, see, that, that, that Thaddy Daddy. speaks. I fucking love it. Um, mm-hmm. This was not, in fact, his last speech, but it had the tone of a final message. Congress adjourned before congressional plan of reconstruction reached its final form, but its general outline was clear and no further compromise between the congressional majority and Johnson was possible. Already the president's attitude on the 14th amendment and reconstruction had led to two suicides, the resignation of three members of the cabinet. And although Stanton remained, his retention caused the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Sumner, much against his will, had remained silent when the Senate, by party caucus, had decided upon the 14th Amendment. On the last day of Congress, he wrote the Duchess of Argyll. The Duchess of Argyll? Who the fuck is that? Uh, (laughs) The suffering at, at the South is great. Through the misconduct of the president, his course has kept the rebel spirit alive and depressed the loyal white and black. It makes me very sad to see this, considering the difficulties of their position. The blacks have done wonderfully well. They should have had a Moses as a president, but they found a pharaoh. That's see, that's good shit by Sumner right there. Mm-hmm. They both they both come out banging. Yeah, particularly had the situation in Louisiana become tense. The New Orleans riot of July thirtieth, eighteen sixty six, confirmed the abolitionists and their opposition. Or in their opinion, I apologize, that the reconstructed states were in the power of the rebels and that they were using their power to put the Negro back into slavery and that no man, white or black, who was friendly to the Union was safe in the South. 
there were reported a thousand murders in the South with a few of the criminals brought to justice. And the country was convinced that the president had disrupted the Union Party and was conspiring with Democrats, North and South, to drive out the Republicans. In the election of 1866, there was on the side of Congress a Union Party with a center-right block of Republicans, a left wing of radical abolitionists, and a right wing of reactionary war Democrats. Andrew Johnson tried to unite the Western radicals and the war Democrats into a new third party to be reinforced eventually by the returned secessionists. But between extreme democracy and reaction, there was no common ground. He only succeeded in getting support of a few of the war Democrats and the Copperhead who were either Southerners living in living North or Northern men with Southern principles. State and national conventions met. Johnson and his friends started out August 14th to form a Johnson party. Ballsy. The National <laughs> Union Convention. Let's form a party around a man with no principles who gets whipped in debates and gets drunk and gives speeches occasionally. You know, I'm you Andrew laugh Johnson. At this. You laugh at this. We might be seeing it in real time. We just saw the Capitol storm for it. Shut your whore mouth. (laughs) The National Union Convention met in Philadelphia with states north and south represented. A special wigwam, two stories high, was erected on Girard Avenue, seating 10,000 people. That's a big-ass wigwam. The interior was decorated with... That's a big-ass wigwam. 10,000-seat wigwam. That's a big wigwam. The interior was decorated with flags. Horace Greeley called it a bread-and-butter convention composed of 99% of rebels and copperheads. Thomas Nast ridiculed the convention in his cartoons in Harper's Weekly. Their declaration of principles, accepted unanimously, declared the war had maintained the Constitution and the Union unaltered, and that neither Congress nor the general government had any authority to deny the constitutional right of constitutional representation to any state. They urged the election of congressmen who would admit all loyal representatives from the South. Mm, Getting into some loyalty here. They affirmed the inability of a state either to secede or exclude any other state from the Union and the constitutional right of each state to decide for itself the qualifications for voting within its borders. I I, insisted. my, My brain lights up anytime I see both sides in. And and that was that was some clever little both sides in there. Anyone who exceeds or excludes any other state. So if if you secede, that's that's treason. It's fine, cool. Um, if you keep the seceded states out until they agree to the terms that the winner of the war makes them agree to, because that's how it fucking works, that, that might as well be secession. That's what these guys are it saying. Seems to it's, be the same thing. Yeah, yeah. it's both sidesy. They denied any desire in the southern states to restore slavery. They proclaimed the invalidity of the rebel debts, the inviolability of the federal debt, and the right of freedmen to the same protection of persons and property as afforded to whites. They urged government aid for federal soldiers and their families. And finally, they expressed wholehearted endorsements for Andrew Johnson. Fuck off. Mm-hmm. The weakness of this meeting was that first it contained, in fact, a few Republicans, most of the delegates being well-known Democrats who had opposed Lincoln. It was dubbed the Conference of Copperhead, and among the delegates were Vallandigham and Fernando Wood. <laughs> Secondly, the meeting was not followed up with careful organization. Are we supposed to know who the fuck Vallandigham and Fernando Wood are? Fern- you don't know a Fernando Wood? Good sir, come now. 
come, come. That's, take over. That, that sounds like some kind of, you know, one-off double acoustic guitar band from the 70s or some shit. Like, oh, you're not you're not in on Valandingham and Fernando? Oh, man. No, oh, man. no that's, that's the good stuff. Come on. Put that on. Get them headphones. <laughs> no sooner had this convention adjourned than the Southern Loyalists met in Philadelphia on September 3rd to confirm with the Northern Republicans, including Horace Greeley, John Jacob Astor, Carl Schurz, the words to oh, Schurz, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Frederick Douglass, Brownlow, Tablas E. Benton, Morton, Cameron, and Gary. I like how some people get full names and some people just get last see, names. See, but that's the thing. The fact that, see, as like, I feel like I am supposed to like Carl Schurz. I feel like as a as a moral he's, human being, yeah, I should like fine. Carl Schurz. He just writes too long. He's a wordy mouth motherfucker. He is. He is. Carl, if Carl Schurz would have written State and Revolution, it would be as long as Capital. So, but <laughs> we think he's a good dude. We'll <laughs> we're just, probably we're just very an jaded. okay guy. Just couldn't edit. Yes. This conference met in two parts, one Northern and one Southern. Frederick Douglass was elected delegate from Rochester to attend the convention. It was a great honor for a black man in a white city. On the train, he met Southern and Western delegates, including Governor Oliver P. Morton of Indiana. After consultation, a committee waited on him and, through a Louisiana spokesman, insisted on their high respect for him, but also on their fear that it was ex- inexpedient for him to attend the convention on account of the cry of social and political equality, which would be raised against the Republican Party. Douglas replied, gentlemen, with all respect, you might as well ask me to put a loaded pistol to my head and blow my brains out as to ask me to keep out of this convention, which I have been duly elected. (laughs) Not fucking around Frederick Douglas. Ballsy there, Fred. (laughs) He pointed out the fact of his election was widely known and his failure to attend would be inexplicable. Later, he was warned against... against walking in the procession and for a while it looked as if he would have to walk alone until theodore tilton of new york offered to walk with him in that parade he met a daughter of his former owner that's (laughs) wow holy shit Uh, wild as shit yeah that's i don't i don't know what that footnote had to do with anything but that is crazy as fuck all right um during the convention speed who had just resigned from the cabinet, called the president a tyrant, and the Southern loyalist attacked Johnson, but split on Negro, Negro suffrage. A part of the convention <laughs> finally adopted this declaration. The government, by national and appropriate legislation, enforced by national authority, shall confer on every citizen in the states we represent the American birthright of impartial suffrage and equality before the law. This is the one all-sufficient remedy. This is our great and pressing necessity. Gonna... Governor Brownlow of Tennessee, in discussing Negro suffrage at the same convention on September 3rd, 1866, said, Some gentlemen, from a mistaken view of my character, said they were afraid of Negro suffrage and wanted to dodge it. I have never dodged any subject, nor have I ever been found on both sides of any subject. While I am satisfied with everything done here, I would go further. I am an advocate of Negro suffrage and impartial suffrage. I would rather associate with loyal Negroes than with disloyal white men. I would rather Hell yeah. I would rather be buried in a Negro graveyard than in a rebel graveyard. And after death, I would sooner go to a Negro heaven than a white rebel's hell. 
Oh, some of the fucking oh, quotes oh, here are he fantastic. Say, I thought he was going to say white rebels heaven yeah. because honestly, yes, yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Like, come on. Yeah, of course they're going to hell. Um, like, like you're giving them, you're, you're giving them hell versus yeah, but, but yes, Brown, I mean, good, good on you, Governor Brownlow. Good on you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were followed in September two military conventions, one in Cleveland, September 18th, by Friends of Johnson, which did not mention Negro suffrage. It denounced the abolitionists. <laughs> yeah, I know. It denounced the abolitionists, strange again, huh? Uh, and said that they were trying to force another war because <laughs> they love Johnson's race war narrative. Uh, Civil War Two electric at boogaloo. At least they love Johnson's race war narrative, but they're also aware of the real world enough to know that that's just a repeat of what just happened. So <laughs> it contained yeah. many Democrats and a few conservative Republicans. Confederate officers at Memphis, including General Forrest of Fort Pillow fame, um, <laughs> sent sympathy. <laughs> that, that's Pillow. the guy in the Forrest Gump. This joke is named after as a joke. Um, I don't fu- force. I, I don't know, but I just know Fort Pillow is the lamest name for any fort in the history of time. <laughs> it's a pillow fort. You made a fort. It's literally a pillow. It is a literally a fort for pillow fights. Come on, guys. So. <laughs> Uh, He said sympathy by telegram, which was unfortunate publicity and in answer to this national convention of citizens, soldiers and sailors was held at Pittsburgh, September 25th and 26th. There were many volunteer officers of high rank and Johnson was denounced and the 14th Amendment advocated. This convention had great influence upon public opinion and popularized the 14th Amendment. The issue in the election of the fall of 1866 turned on whether Congress should recognize Southern states as reconstructed by Johnson. It was not a presidential year, but congressmen and state legislatures were to be elected. The real campaign began in August with the 14th Amendment of August Convention of Philadelphia. This convention greatly encouraged Johnson, and he wrote it attacking Congress for preventing the restoration of peace and union and denying that it was really a legal Congress. If I had wanted authority or if I had wished to perpetuate my own power, how easily could I have held and wielded that which was placed in my hands by the measure of called the Freedmen's Bureau Bill? That sounds that sounds very familiar mm-hmm. to right now. That yeah. sounds like a crazy person talking about their desire to hold power. <laughs> on July 4th, he had issued another proclamation of general amnesty. And on August 20th, he declared the Civil War at an end. Already in the spring, he had promised to lay the cornerstone of a monument to Stephen A. Douglas in Chicago. And he left Washington. August 28th, on a great campaign tour, which which was to sweep the country, he took General Grant with him and his members of his cabinet, and Seward joined him in New York. Great fucking Seward. Uh, oh, goody. Johnson stopped at Philadelphia, New York, Albany, and then west by way of Cleveland, Chicago, and St. Louis. It was an extraordinary and increasingly painful effort by which Johnson definitely defeated himself and his own political policies. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, very much so. Very much so. Without a fail tour. Great. <laughs> he, he showed genius for saying the wrong thing in new york for instance he asked are we prepared after the cost of war to continue the disrupted condition of the country why are we afraid of the represent representatives of the south some have grown fat and some have grown rich by the aggregation and destruction of others in philadelphia in philadelphia by the aggression oh, and destruction aggression of, others. of others sorry 
No, it's fine. Uh, in Philadelphia, he declared that God was a tailor like himself. At Cleveland. Oh, okay. At Cle- He's lost the thread. Boom. Shut. <laughs> At Cleveland, his audience became a mob while the president himself increased the hubbub. The city authorities made preparations for a polite reception, but as he proceeded with his harangue, the mob took complete possession of the crowd. Someone cried, why not hang Thad Stevens and Wendell Phillips? Yes, yelled Johnson. Why not hang them? Some towns hung. Andrew Johnson is Donald goddamn Trump. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm just going to say it out loud right now. Andrew Johnson is doing the Donald Trump model Mm -hmm. like 100 percent. So much. Some towns hung out black flags and banners. No, no welcome to traitors. Bands played the death march. Johnson shouted in defiance. His egotism was ridiculed. He was charged with being drunk and a traitor and a demagogue. <laughs> God, I wish I could have seen this. This would have been fantastic. I mean, he was he was charged with being drunk. He was actively drunk. Oh, yeah. On he reeled, as Burgess said, the trip degraded the presidential office. The New York Tribune watched it with a feeling of national shame and called it the stumbling tour of an inebriated demagogue. (laughs) The New York world excused him by asking who of all the presidents had been lower than Lincoln in personal bearing. The Herald. What does that even mean? I don't know. The Herald put the blame on Seward's shoulders. Fair. The. Mephistopheles? Mephistopheles. 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 You wouldn't know that. You're Catholic. Okay. Of the administration. (laughs) That's so hilarious. That's so good. Loyal called the journey an indecent orgy. Rhodes said he was intoxicated (laughs) at the Cleveland. As opposed to a goddamn, a God-fearing, decent orgy. Yes, that's right. An orderly orgy. While Schuler declares he was sober, the culmination came in St. Louis, where Johnson declared that the blood of the New Orleans riot was on Congress. He decried the diabolical and nefarious policies of Stevens, Phillips, and Sumner. The most charitable thing that the defenders of Aaron jo- Andrew Johnson can say of him is that occasionally he got drunk. For too much liquor alone would excuse such extraordinary Congress as performances as his vice presidential inauguration, his speech of February 22nd, 1866, his exhibition in Cleveland, and his St. Louis debauch. If he was not an occasional drunkard, he was God's own fool. I mean, let's not point fingers here, people. You know, we all like we all we all get into our cups occasionally. He returned to Washington, as Schurz says. Oh, God. (laughs) Why did I take over on a Schurz quote? (laughs) He returned to Washington, as Schurz says, an utterly discomforted and disgraced man, having gone out to win popular support and having earned only public disgust. Andrew Johnson, not a cool dude. (laughs) The role of Seward during this episode was pathetic. One of the out one of the wits of the time spoke of Seward's new office of bear leader. Unfortunately, he was very unsuccessful even in this task, for he could do little more than apologize for Johnson. <laughs> and in a few commonplace sentences, calls upon the audience to support the president in opposition to Congress. At Niagara, he told the crowd that Lincoln had been traduced when alive, but after his assassination, all hearts inclined to the deepest sorrow, and it would be the same if Johnson should be taken. Can off don't don't murder this guy you'll be sad about it is <laughs> the best he's got 
<laughs> to the citizens of Buffalo, he stated the issue as follows. The question is between the president and con- and the Congress. Of all that has been done to bring us so near the col- com- consummation of Reconstruction, you can see that nothing has been done and that was not done through the direction, agency, activity, perseverance, and patriotism of Andrew Johnson, President of the United States. Will you stand by Congress or will you stand by the president? Okay. I know who I'm standing by. Okay. I would have formally take it back as a podcast. He's not he's not Trump. He's Rudy Giuliani with a bigger <laughs> drinking problem. <laughs> it's so bad. And he's got some fucking William H. Seward following up behind him going, he's not that bad. If anybody deserves the misery of being Johnson's sad ass PR boy, it is Seward. It's fucking William H. Seward. Oh my Fuck you. God. What a beautiful, Republicans- beautiful comeuppance. <laughs> the Republicans took every advantage of the situation. They saw in Johnson the instinct of the poor white cropping out. He cannot shake off the boot licking productivity born and bred in him towards the aristocracy of the South. Miserable fool. <laughs> Stevens made but one speech in the campaign of 1866. He said that he had been directed by his physician neither to think, speak, nor read until the next session of Congress, that he had followed the orders not to read almost literally. It is true. I have amused myself with a little light, frivolous reading. For instance, there was a serial account from day to day of a very remarkable circus that traveled through the country from Washington to (laughs) Chicago to St. Louis and from Louisville back to Washington. I read that with some interest, expecting to see it so celebrated an establishment, one which it is heralding was to beat Dan Rice from the old circus. I don't know who Dan Rice is and all the old circuses that ever went forth. I expected a great wit and the celebrated character of its clowns. <laughs> this is just the dunking episode, guys. It, it Everyone's is. dunking on everybody. It is awesome. It is awesome. It, Mostly on Johnson something. and he fucking deserves it. And he deserves it. As yes. the campaign of 1866 progressed, the agitation in favor of granting suffrage to the Negro as a necessary protection of his freedom became marked. First of all, industry and trade were convinced that they could not trust the white South. Mm-hmm. Good, good idea, industry and trade. Therefore, the more extreme ideas which Stevens had advocated were allowed to be broadcast. Their logic was, this, was strong and their methods popular. People had faith in laws and they wanted some great reenactment, some great enactment in keeping with the greatness of the war. It was ripe time for amending the Constitution and in inaugurating final reforms. These reforms might be in advance at the time, but they were worth trying and they were appeared to be no middle path. Thus, as the campaign went on, Negro suffrage occupied a more and more important position. Stevens, Wade, Sumner, Chase, Schurz, and Chandler were in favor of it. Of course, Schurz was. He's he's a good man. Yeah. A wordy good man. Wordy good man. <laughs> a wordy good man. Mata, what a man, what a man, what a wordy good man. <laughs> yeah, we're doing it. To many Northerners, it had been at first unthinkable, but more and more they became convinced. The nation urged full Negro suffrage and Negro civil rights, but opposed the exclusion of white leaders from office. David, take it away. The doctrine that this is a white man's government and intended for white men only is, as the Perrys profess it, as monstrous a doctrine as was ever concocted. 
To allow the states to reorganize on this basis, the nation added, it will make the very name of American democracy a hissing and a byword among the nations of the earth. It is anyway. To have this theory of the nature of our government boldly thrust in our faces now, after the events of the last four years, by men who had come red-handed from the battlefield, and to whose garments the blood of our brothers and sons still clings, and to know that the president, who owes in part at least his ability to be president to the valor and blood of colored troops, concurs with them in this scandalous repudiation of the democratic principles, are things which the country, we trust, will find it hard to bear." For a brief period, for the seven mystic years that stretched between Johnson's swing around full circle to the panic of 1873, the majority of thinking Americans of the North believed in equal manhood of Negroes. They acted accordingly with a thoroughness and clean-cut decision that no age which does not share that faith can in the slightest comprehend. They did not free draft animals nor enfranchise gorillas nor welcome morons to Congress. They simply recognized black folk as men. The South called for war, said James Russell Lowell, and and we have given it to her. We will fix the terms of peace ourselves, and we will teach the South that Christ is disguised in a dusky race. Then came in 1863-1876 sudden and complete disillusion, not at Negroes, but at the world, at business, at work, at religion, at art. A bitter protest of Southern property reinforced Northern reaction, and while after long years of the American world recovered in most matters, it had never quite yet understood why it would ever have thought that black men were altogether human. There were men in the South and former slaveholders who knew the truth and spoke it. They knew that there could be no salvation for the South in time or eternity until the former slave went forth as a man. But the entrenched intolerance of the South, coupled with the awful grief at the death of the flower of Southern manhood, let such prophets speak but few words. They spoke here and there in nearly every Southern state, but they were soon threatened into silence. And there prevailed a bitter hatred a cry for vengeance from people who could not brook defeat because they had been used to victory and had the slave-born habit of arrogance for their grief none had greater sympathy than the bulk of their former slaves they served and even and even succored their former masters and yet upon these and their fellows was eventually placed the whole wrath of the south which it could not turn toward the north and especially it fell upon those freedmen who felt their freedom, who were uplifted by new ambition, who showed the gathered resentment of 200 years of whipping, kicks, and cuffs. In fine, on them ha- had rolling on their ears God's great des- despoit pontes. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and have exalted them of low degree. After the final elections of 1866, the Republicans had 143 members in the House and the Democrats 49. All states gave strong majority to the Republican Party except the border states of Maryland, Delaware, and Kentucky. In the South, the Democratic candidates were universally successful. Not counting the South, the Republicans in the Senate had two-thirds majority and a nearly three-fourths majority in the House. Through the winter of 1866 to 1867, notwithstanding the results of the elections of 1866, the South rejected the 14th Amendment. Virginia gave one vote in favor, North Carolina 11 out of 148, South Carolina one vote, 
Georgia, 2 out of 169. Alabama, 10 out of 106. Texas, 5. And Arkansas, 3. Florida, Mississippi, and Louisiana were unanimously against it. Thus, the South defied Congress and demanded that the disenfranchised Negro should be counted as basis of representation. The South was encouraged in this stand by the president. The governor of Alabama telegraphed him that the rejection of the 14th Amendment could be reconsidered by his state, but Johnson discouraged him. This increased the strength of the Republicans in the North. The president's message of December 4, 1866, with all of the earmarks of Seward, was calm and skillful. He said that the war was ended and that the nation should now proceed as free, prosperous, and united nation. He had already informed Congress of his efforts for the gradual restoration of the states. All that remained now was the admission of Congress of loyal senators and representatives. While Congress had been considering this, the president had appointed various public officials, and the 13th Amendment had been passed. Yet Congress hesitated to admit the southern states to representation, and after eight months, only Tennessee had been admitted. He wished to leave the whole matter of suffrage to the states, and he was significantly silent on the black coats. The second session of the 39th Congress began December 3rd. The Senate asked for a report on the condition of the southern states, since the president had practically said nothing about it. The president replied December 19th, 1866. As a result of the measure instituted by the executive, with the view of inducing a resumption of the functions of the states comprehended in the inquiry of the Senate, the people of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Tennessee have reorganized their respective state governments and are yielding obedience to the laws of the government of the United States. Bullshit, Johnson. With more willingness <laughs> and greater promptitude and under the circumstances could really reasonably have been anticipated. The proposed amendment of the Constitution, providing for the abolition of slavery forever within the limits of the country, has been ratified by each one of those states, with the exception of Mississippi, from which no official information has yet been received. And in nearly all of them, measures have been adopted, <coughs> or are now pending, to confer upon freedmen rights and privileges, which are essential to their comfort, protection, and security. In Florida and Texas, the people are making commendable progress in restoring their state governments, and no doubt it is entertained that they will, at an early period, be in condition to resume all of their practical relations for the federal government. It is true that in some of the states, demoralizing effects of the war are to be seen in occasional disorders, but these are local in character and not frequent in occurrence. Again, bullshit, Johnson. And are rapidly disappearing, are rapidly disappearing as the authority of civil law is extended and sustained. Perplexing questions were naturally to be expected from the great and sudden change in relations between two races, but systems are gradually developing themselves under which freedmen will receive protection to which he is justly entitled and by the means of his labor make himself a useful and independent member of the community in which he has his home. The transubstantiation of Andrew Johnson was complete. He had begun as the champ of the poor laborer, demanding that the land monopoly of the southern oligarchy be broken up so as to give access to the soil south and west to the free laborer. He had demanded the punishment <clears throat> of those southerners who by slavery and war had made such an economic program possible. Suddenly thrust into the presidency, he had retreated from this attitude. He had not only given up extravagant ideas of punishment, but he dropped his demand for dividing up plantations, and when he realized that Negroes would largely be beneficiaries because he could not conceive of Negroes as men, he refused to advocate universal democracy, of which, in his young manhood, he had been the fiercest advocate and made strong alliance with those who would restore slavery under another name. 
This change did not come by deliberate thought or conscious desire to hurt. It was rather a tragedy of Americans' prejudice made flesh, so that a man born to narrow circumstances, a rebel against economic privilege, died with the convention conventional ambition of a poor white to be the associate and benefactor of monopolist planters and slave drivers. In some respects, Andrew Johnson is the most pitiful figure in American history, a man who, despite great power and great ideas, became a puppet played upon by the mighty fingers and selfish, subtle minds, groping, self-made, unlettered, and alone, drunk not so much with liquor as with heady wine out of sudden and accidental success. My soul wailed, and this is a the poem at the end. My this so- is our poem at the end. Yes. Uh, my soul wailed on as falcons hover. Waited. Oh, waited. <clears throat> okay, that completely changed that. My soul waited on as falcons hover. I beat the reedy fens as I trampled past. I heard the mournful loon in the marsh beneath the moon. And then, with feathery thunder, the bird of my desire broke from the cover, flashing silver fire. High upon the stars, I saw his pinion spire. The pale clouds gla- gazed aghast as my falcon dropped upon him with gripped and held him fast. That's by and that, William ladies Rose and Benet. gentlemen, is a goddamn chapter. That is a chapter. Uh, also, that is a yeah. Lee Lord, it was fun to dunk on Johnson because he sucks. Andrew Johnson is uh garbage. Yes, it yes. is wildly acknowledged. It is it is true. It is factual. It is just the way of the world. Yes, but um, now I know about the fun. super disaster circus tour. That that's exciting. <laughs> the super disaster <laughs> circus tour of eighteen sixty six. Oh, that's yeah. That's going to be this episode's picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just get Dumbo Dumbo on the circus tour. Um, spoiler alert for next time. We are starting chapter nine, The Price of Disaster. Ooh. I'm curious where this leads us, because honestly, I don't know where we go from here. There was a lot yeah. in here. There was a lot to dis- dissect. Um, I feel like we've dissected this oh, chapter there. pretty well. And Yeah, I mean, there was quite a bit, right? You know, Johnson embarrassed himself. Republicans gained more and more power in the North, but the South was just steadfast in their racism. Um, and then, of course, you know, we re-upped. We saw that that most of the violence is of course going to come directly on black people first and foremost. Um, but anyone who holds politics that, that benefits them is, is swept up in the storm and they're going to come violently after that. And Johnson as, as a personal human being uh, was not only, you know, irresponsible and, and weak pathetic um, after being very easily turned over by Southern planters and fucking Seward who was a snake in the grass the whole time. Um, <coughs> but also he kind of personifies, you know, America's all being temporarily disaffected millionaires. He was, you know, all these Southern white men were temporarily disaffected planters. And yep. that's, there's an attitude like that, that carries on pertains still, you know, to this day, that's, that's why we have the expression about America's all being temporarily disaffected millionaires. And yep. uh, that's something we really have to break. Have to break, and and hopefully through the rest of this book, we'll we'll see a <laughs> see some sort of comeuppance. But I I just get a feeling we're on the backward turn to where yeah. this starts getting I mean, sad Seward, for me. Seward got some comeuppance for having to be fucking 
PR man of, of Andrew Duncan Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having to do a, having to do a drunk person's PR campaign is definitely not, not what William H. Seward probably would, imagined his life would become. I would say at this point, the only reason there's not a whiskey named after Andrew Johnson is because of his unpopularity because holy hey now, don't get carried away don't get carried away we can find one if we try okay <laughs> if, if we go deep enough into into the south we'll find one i i'm confident that being said this has been uh mark's madness we are a uh, podcast where we read mm-hmm. books occasionally we read books sh- uh for a period of time shorter than we normally do that's because we finished a chapter and we're not going to start another chapter with like 10 minutes to go yeah and you don't want us to vamp for 10 minutes and you got a bonus episode this week so you know we're just going to cut it off here at its natural point if you disagree with that stance on how we run our podcast email us it's marksmadnesspod at gmail.com Maybe you'd prefer to tweet angry things at us instead. You can do that. It's at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Um, and last but not least, maybe you want to invade the community that we hang out in and uh, and regulate and, and do day-to-day communication in. You could come to our Discord and tell us we're wrong. Um, it's uh, it's in our Twitter. The link is in our Twitter bio. Um, if, if for whatever reason it's been discontinued, please let us know because occasionally it just does that. Uh, that being said, David, I feel like we could use a little disclaiming. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously we started this podcast because me and Nathan were just reading a book together and we figured, you know, you want to read and discuss theory and maybe we should share that with more people. Um, and so we recorded it and decided to go forward with it. Um, and the the way we want to go forward, the plan since the beginning, since we did decide it would be a thing is that hopefully you're in some kind of organization out there, um, or at least some kind of reading group and whatever reading group, political education you're involved in is reading this along with us. And we can be another voice, uh, someone else to help you fully understand that and give another perspective. Save for that. Hopefully your reading group, political education, if they're doing shorter works, um, is still giving you enough time to read this along with us and that we can be your reading group in that case. Um, and save for that, you know, some works we, of course, summarize and hopefully we your hands cliff notes or works like this. Hopefully we can be in your hand, your enhanced ebook, whatever we can do to make these works of theory more accessible to you. Because this theory is very important because if you go out there and take actions without theory, they can be rudderless, they can be misguided, easily co-opted, turned the wrong direction. Um, and praxis is theory in action. Theory is useless without it. You're only ever going to fully do your praxis well with theory behind Behind you, and you're only ever going to fully understand your theory with praxis. And obviously, the point of theory is praxis. They go hand in hand; they're tied at the hip. Amen. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to y'all next week. Bye. Bye.